1995, Christopher Paul Curtis published his debut novel, The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963, to rave reviews and a slew of major kid-lit awards and honors. The book won a Newbery Honor, the Coretta Scott King Award, and the Golden Kite Award. Teachers loved it, librarians loved it, and over the last two-plus decades, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of kids have loved it too. In The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963, we meet the Watson family. There's our narrator, Kenny, his older brother, Byron, and his younger sister, Joetta, aka Joey. Their parents work hard, but still find time to joke around and have fun. The family's major struggle is Byron's behavior. Kenny jokes that his brother is a teenage delinquent, but they really can't seem to get his antics under control. We break down a few specific incidents on this episode, but suffice it to say that Mr. and Mrs. Watson are over it and have decided that the only thing to do is to bring their oldest son to live with his grandmother in Birmingham, Alabama, where the realities of racism in the South might change his perspective. Also, they kind of just hope that his grandmother will get him in line. The Watsons embark on a road trip from their home in Flint, Michigan to Birmingham, and when they get there, things seem to be going pretty well until there's a bombing at a nearby Baptist church while Joey is attending Sunday school there. The good news is that Joey survives. The bad news is that Kenny's mental health takes a serious hit after he witnesses these events, which, by the way, are based on real history. On this episode, we talk about the way Christopher Paul Curtis portrays family, siblings, masculinity, bullying, and racism in The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963. We talk about his fascinating path to becoming an award-winning author. We talk about how different my memory of this book was from what it actually is. And we talk about the ways in which it seems to be ahead of its time in terms of open conversations about race and mental health. My friend Renee Hicks, the book lover behind the Book Girl Magic community, is back for her second SSR appearance, and I couldn't be more excited. Book Girl Magic is a virtual book club with a very important twist, reading books that celebrate black women authors. The idea was born out of a desire to introduce all readers to authors who might otherwise not be celebrated like their peers, especially in an industry largely dominated by males. Now the group has morphed, inspiring women across the world to read outside of their own ethnic groups. In a world in which our differences can seemingly tear us apart, Renee and Book Girl Magic use books to bring people together and inspire change. Learn more at bookgirlmagic.com, follow on Twitter at bookgirlmagic, and follow on Instagram at book underscore girl underscore magic. Renee, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Another big thanks goes out to all of the Patreon sponsors listening to this episode. Your support keeps this podcast going strong. For those who don't know, Patreon is a platform that connects independent creators, like me, with the fans of the things they create, like this podcast. For a few dollars every month, as little as a dollar actually, you can support the podcast and get exclusive access to tons of fun rewards. I have been getting great feedback on the two new rewards I introduced last month, virtual Patreon parties and monthly reading recap videos, but there are also bonus episodes, SSR merch, newsletters, and more up for grabs. Learn more at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. You can also show your support for the podcast by leaving a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or by coming along for the ride on social media. We are at ssrpod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. Give the show a follow and say hey. I love connecting with listeners on social media, and I love sharing cute photos and hilarious videos of my golden retriever there too. Come to SSR's Instagram for the books and awesome podcast episodes. 
but definitely stay for my dog. At the end of this episode, you'll hear Renee reference two audiobooks. I'll let her share the details with you because they both sound really cool. But in the meantime, let me remind you about Libro FM. Libro FM has made it possible for you to support indie bookstores instead of giant corporations when you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks you can get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. There's really no downside. In fact, there's an extra upside. SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. If you do decide to check out either of the audiobooks that Renee recommends, why not buy them on Libro.fm and support independent bookstores while you're at it? Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Renee. Welcome back to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thanks so much for having me. It's so fun to see you. We were just talking before we started recording about how, I guess it was a couple of months after we recorded the first episode that you did, which I'll link in the show notes, listeners, we got to meet in person at BookCon all the way back in 2019, which feels like another life. Forever ago, for sure. (laughs) We went to a bar, like we were, there there were people around, we were packed in this tiny little like- Hole in the wall, yeah. Hole in the wall, like event space in New York. I don't even know what that feels like anymore, but it's nice to connect with you in this remote way um, and to get to talk books with you all over again. Yes, so excited. Thank you. Yeah, so we are talking about Christopher Paul Curtis's 1995 middle grade book, The Watsons Go to Birmingham. I'm really excited. I wanted to read this book for a long time. I'm thrilled that you chose it. Can you tell me a little bit about why you picked it, if you read it when you were growing up, what your memories were, if so? I did not read it when I was younger. So this was my first time reading it. Um, I actually got a copy from the publisher because the 25th anniversary edition came out, I think it was in the fall. So they sent it to me in celebration of that. So it was just kind of sitting in my pile. And once I saw it on the list, I was like, oh, I already have this. It's perfect. Let's go with it. And so it was a no brainer for me, something that was on my TBR that I already had. And so I was extremely excited to read this. Meant to be. Yes, definitely. (laughs) I did read this when I was a kid, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more as we go on, but my memory of it is totally different than like what I took away from it this time around. I remember it being about like a family road trip and just about the Watsons going to Birmingham, like period, the trip to Birmingham. And as we'll discuss, like the road trip is actually a very short part of this book. A ton of it takes place before they travel when they're living in Flint, Michigan. And then we get some more story once they've actually arrived in Birmingham. But the road trip itself is like really not that much of a thing. At all. And that's it was crazy to me because I'm as I'm reading it, I'm like, okay, when are we getting to this road trip? How does it happen? How does it come about? And it's like you just go through the story of the characters and who they are as people. 
And so, yeah, it's like this small chunk of the actual road trip that we get to and then, you know, the end of the story. So, yeah, I thought it was going to be entirely based on this road trip that this family was taking and things that happened to them. But, yeah, not at all. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why that's the part of the book that I remember. Like, maybe because when you're a kid, a road trip is like such a big deal. Right. But when I was reading, I was like, okay, when are we going to get there? Like, when are they going to get in the car? <laughs> like, And then I will say the author did a very smart thing in terms of like speeding up that part of the story by right. like the mom in the story had initially planned this very specific itinerary. They were going to drive X number of miles a day and then they were going to go to a motel and then they were going to drive X number of miles the next day. But Christopher Paul Curtis so smartly was like, mm, I don't really want to write about this part of it. So then dad was just like, we're just going to, we're just going to go the whole way. Right. Not even stop. I'm just going to go for it. I can make it like, that's good. Yeah. That was a very smart writing move. I thought I was like, I'm going to put that in my, uh, up in my brain in case I ever need to write about a road trip that I don't want to write about. Like I don't feel like connecting those dots. Just zoom right through it. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I read some interesting stuff about the author's process in writing this book that I wanted to share. Everybody knows that I love an author process moment on the show. Yeah. So Christopher Paul Curtis always wanted to be a writer, but he didn't really think that it was possible for him. He lived in Flint, Michigan. A lot of elements of the book are autobiographical, especially like the stories of growing up. There's a lot of like fun sibling content in this book. And a lot of that is true of his experience when he was growing up. But he spent most of his like young adult life working in an automobile manufacturing plant. And he decided at some point that he was going to just finally like chase the dream of becoming a writer and do it. So he decided to take time off from his job. I don't know exactly how long, but during that period, he every day, and this is a sign of the times, because again, we're talking about like probably late 80s, early 90s here. He would go to a children's library every day and he wrote the story in longhand. And then every day he would go home and his son would transcribe the story from his dad's longhand into the family's computer. Wow. And then he would go back and do it again the next day. Wow. What a process. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that is. I'm more of a writer. Like I like to put pen to paper. So I could feel him on that. But I'm like, if you're ever to write a novel, like you'd have to get it, you know, somewhere digitally on a computer. So might as well just start that way. But that's kind of cool that he had someone to do it for him. Yeah, I'm kind of that way too. Like when I get stuck in my own writing, I usually will like turn and do a couple of pages longhand and that usually gets me going again. Or sometimes if I'm starting something, like I have to start it in longhand. Right. And then I I turn to the computer. But yeah, it's not necessarily sustainable for like a super long piece of fiction. But I thought that story was really cool. Yeah, that's really cool. I did not know that. Yeah. And then after he finished, after he published this book, he, good for him, he left the assembly line for good and he decided to start writing full time. This book won a Newbery Honor in 1995, I believe. And he went on to write a lot of other books that were award winners. I'm turning to the back just to make sure. So there's also The Mighty Miss Malone, Bud Not Buddy, which won, I believe, the Newbery Medal. So this was the Newbery Honor, which means it was kind of like a runner up. Yeah. But the Newbery Medal was Bud Not Buddy. I think when we talked about Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, I think that was also a Newbery Honor winner. We've had some really good convos. Even I said, yes. Bud Not Buddy is definitely on my list too, because I've seen that one time and time again. So yeah, plan to read that. Yeah, that's high on my list for the podcast too. Maybe another option later. Yeah, in the maybe I'll have you back again. You're just going to be kind of like, I'll be like, oh, do you remember when I talked about Bud Not Buddy? Let's talk about right. that one too. <laughs> It is worth noting, listeners, and and I think that um, we can't really have this conversation without mentioning that 
when I was going through my list, really at every point that I go through my list, because I, I periodically will like go through my wish list for the books I want to talk about on the podcast, and I'll like take things off that I've already done, or I'll add things, and then I'm always getting requests from people. When I look at the list of books, especially that were published like pre-2000, pre-2010, there mm-hmm. are very few authors of color represented on that list. Yeah. And as I've talked about on the podcast, I hate that. Like, I wish that I could represent more authors of color in the books that we talk about on the show. And unfortunately, because we do these throwback books, our options are very limited. And Christopher Paul Curtis is one of these authors, a Black author who was extremely successful at a time when there weren't that many other authors that looked like him who were telling stories like his who were popular and mainstream. And so I think it's worth mentioning that, like, every time I ask my community for recommendations of books written by authors of color, it's always the Watsons go to Birmingham or Bud Not Buddy. So I'm, I'm thrilled that we're finally like finding a place to talk about this. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So let's talk about it. So we meet our little friend, Kenny, who's the narrator. He's 10, I believe. Yes. What were your first impressions of Kenny? He, he really is like letting us into his world in Flint, Michigan. He's introducing us to his family. What were your thoughts? He seems very, well, first of all, he's very gullible. That's one thing that I got from him. But also very lovable. It seems like everybody in the family kind of depends on him in in different ways, except for maybe by. But I did like Kenny. He just, he kind of rolled with things. And like I said, he's very gullible. So it's like he believes certain things just to kind of fit in and, and, and go with the flow was what I noticed about him. So almost like a people pleaser at times, like wants to make everybody happy and will do what he can to achieve that. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe him. He's a middle child, which I also think is worth mentioning. I, I hadn't really thought about him as a people pleaser before, but now that you're saying that, I feel like I've read that there's like a big overlap between like middle children and people <laughs> pleasers. And and I see that with him. Like he has this older brother, Byron, aka Bai, who is just, as he calls him, like an official teenage juvenile delinquent, like yes. always getting into trouble. I'm sure we'll talk about all of his antics and all of his mischief mm-hmm. as we go. And then there's Joetta, Joey, who is like a literal angel. Like I think yep. they, they call her an angel many times throughout the book. And she sort yep. of comes to symbolize like everything that is good and perfect and beautiful and pure in their world. She's the peacemaker in the family. Totally. The peacemaker yep. in the family like is constantly trying to like intervene when her brothers are getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. And then there's Kenny who's smack in the middle who like, I feel like he's a good blend of the two of them. Like he sort of wants to be a little bit more mischievous sometimes. Like he's not sure how to feel about his brother. So sometimes he's like, oh, maybe I could be like that too. But then Joey is just so sweet and he also like wants, wants to be that. And I think inherently he is that way. Yeah. He wants that cool factor that Bai had. And so he's willing to do whatever just to kind of be cool in school and seen as cool. Yeah. Absolutely. I thought that something was was interesting that came up again and again, and especially as we're talking about like his behavior at school and his relationship with his older brother. This book, for me at least, I feel like it had a lot to say about like masculinity and like what it means to be a boy in a school, like what it means to be tough, what it means to be strong. There were a lot of moments where I felt like the author was kind of trying to sneakily be like, sometimes boys cry. Like this is one of, you know, we see all of these moments of not just Kenny, who's like more sensitive crying, but also Byron. Like Byron cries, I think twice, definitely once. I think twice. Mm -hmm. Twice. Like 
I just thought that that there was something going on here. Like there was something in the in the Watsons Go to Birmingham cocktail where Christopher Paul Curtis was kind of exploring like different displays of masculinity. What did you think about that? He did. And I think what I gathered, especially from the kids at school, was that it wasn't cool to be smart. So a lot of like the bullies were either held back for years and years and years. So that like being smart wasn't a cool thing. Um, it wasn't masculine in in the book. And so Kenny was kind of on this fine line where he was really smart and sometimes would be put on display for his smartness. And he's like, no, please don't do this to me. Like my cool points are going to go <laughs> down if you do this. So yeah, I noticed that part of it, just masculinity, not really, well, being smart, being labeled as not masculine is what I'm trying to say. Um, so that was one thing I picked up on in, throughout the book. Yeah, I think that's true. It felt very binary. It was like, it was almost this sense of like physical strength versus intellectual strength. And That's you it. can't have both in this world right? of like Flint elementary school. Like it just doesn't seem to work that way in Kenny's orbit. Like you either are physically aggressive, physically strong, and that makes you a man in the way that right. Byron is or in the way that Byron is kind of like on track to be. Right. Or you're Kenny and you are so smart, so smart that it, it almost felt as though now that you're saying that like, it felt as though he he almost had like lost some of his agency because it's like he's smart. And so right. these teachers are literally dragging him into different classrooms to show that he's this Going great off. reader. Right. And it's like because he was so smart and he didn't have like the physical strength, it was like the teachers were just like, okay, we're just going to kind of pilot you through the building and tell you what to do. It's like you can't right. have, have both. And I think maybe that's what Kenny wanted was to figure out how to be on both sides. But I, And I, I think that's true a lot of times in elementary school. Like – there aren't blurred lines when you're a kid because it's hard to wrap your head around like being more than one thing when you're that little. Right. And he depended on Byron so much for that strength. Like he kept making comments about like, I hope Byron just keeps getting held back until I, I graduate from middle, from elementary school so that he could have that protection from his brother and not be picked on. So yeah, he was really worried about that. Yeah. I think, I think there's also kind of like an interesting, like, commentary on bullying too because we read about Bai as a bully like it's very clear that he pushes little kids around right but he's not as bad of a bully as some of the other bullies like there's mm -hmm. other bullies that are really the scariest in school and even right. Bai's best friend Buffhead yeah is worse than Byron yep and so we we don't really see any like redeeming qualities of Buffhead throughout the book. Like he just kind of seems to suck. Like he's like not a nice kid. He's mean to everybody. He right. like encourages Byron to do bad stuff. That's it. But Byron's bullying is like a little bit more nuanced. Because mm -hmm. he uses his power to protect people. And right. I I think it's interesting now because I feel like the conversation about bullying has turned so that there's not really any – it's not nuanced at this point. Like, I feel like the commentary about bullying is that, like, bullying is bad. And I'm not here to say that bullying is good because it's not. Right. But I do, like, I guess I have a lot of respect for the fact that this author in the early 90s was, like, looking at it in a little bit more of a complex way than I think a lot of people would be prepared to do now. Right. Yeah. I like that he showed by from different angles, too. Like, yes, he was a bully majority of the time, but then there was these little instances where we got a peak of softness from him, especially when it came to Kenny. It was almost like Kenny's his weak spot in some ways. Totally. And I think it was also this sense of, like, this is how Byron became a bully. Like, I think especially, like, I remember the books that I read when I was younger 
the bullies just were bullies and they were mean and that was it. And they, they, that was it. They showed up, they fully formed as bullies who were mean to other kids. That's it. And I think there's kind of something special about reading a book that's from the perspective of a younger brother of a bully who can speak to like how things got to be the way they were and who is observant of the different forces that like shaped his older brother into the kind of person that had bullying tendencies, but also had sort of like heroic tendencies at times. And we also get to see a bully at home, which is not something that I ever really remember seeing in other books. Right. It's mostly at school when you see it. But like you said, we got to see two sides of it where he was mean, but we also saw the side where Kenny benefited from his bullying too, when it was to protect him. Yeah, and it makes you feel very differently about these like very one-sided bullying conversations. Again, I'm not advocating for bullying. Like, please don't come at me about that. But I think that this book does a good job of showing people that like we're all products of our environment. And also like Byron's parents weren't happy about this. Like I think sometimes there's also this understanding that like a kid who is a bully goes home to parents who don't have any regard for the fact that they're bullies and aren't concerned about it. But Mr. and Mrs. Watson are like, not into what's going on with their oldest son and they're doing everything that they can and they can't figure out what's wrong right yeah Byron was kind of different I mean he was kind of to himself too like he wasn't really as loving at home but he still wasn't that same bully like he was on 10 at school he was a completely different person skipping school and things like he was just awful (laughs) awful and I I think that like what we learn about Buphead is that like sometimes bullying maybe comes from a social pressure to behave a certain way. Like Byron to me seems like he just was trying to survive socially and Buffhead like kind of gave him like a pathway to do that by like bullying other kids. It's almost like if he didn't become that bully, he probably probably would have been picked on for being held behind so many years. There was so many things that he could have been picked on being poor. You know, there was a lot of things that, could have factored into that if he wouldn't have been the bully himself. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Something that I read in one of the reviews I came across was that Kenny does a really great job of like illuminating his inner life through the narration of this book. But this reviewer argues that he actually does a better job as a narrator of showing readers about Byron. And it got me thinking a little bit because in some of the grad school classes that I'm taking, we we have this like endless conversation about like whose story is it in a book? And is it always the narrator's story if it's a first person story? You know, obviously when you're looking at like a third person perspective, it's a little bit more difficult because it could be any of the characters. But I, I feel like I've always been conditioned to believe that if it's a first person story, it's always like the narrator's right. story. Like that's the focus. But of course, now I have all this other food for thought in my brain. And so I read this review and I was like, oh my gosh, is this Kenny's story or is it Byron's story? And I I don't know that I can decide. What do you think? I think for me, I got a lot more about Byron from the story than I did Kenny. So for me, it felt more like Byron's story where I got to see all of these different sides of Byron and who he is as a person, but from someone else's perspective. Well, and we wouldn't have gotten that if Kenny wasn't so smart. Like, I think, you know, that we have to acknowledge that. Like, he is so perceptive for a 10-year-old. And he, right. it works for the narrative to have him that way. Like, Christopher Paul Curtis was really smart to make him so precocious and observant and all of these things. Because right. then he could see the world in a way that's maybe different than a lot of other 10-year-olds. Mm-hmm. 
But I, I think when I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is totally Kenny's story. Like he's just kind of telling us what's happening with his family, but he's at the core of it. But I think you might be right. Like I think, I think that he wanted to, I think that maybe Christopher Paul Curtis wanted to tell us a story about Byron, but I would think it would be hard and maybe sort of, I wonder how easy it would be to get attention for a story that's told from the perspective of a bully. Like I, I, maybe that's, maybe that's a tougher sell for publishers. Right. And then also how much of everybody else's perspective could we have gotten if it was told from Byron? Would Byron have cared how Kenny felt or how Joey felt or how mom and dad felt? You know, I don't know that we would have gotten those warm sides if it was told from Byron's perspective. Oh, that's such a good observation. I hadn't even thought about that, but that's true. It would have been like, it's all Byron all the time for Byron. Yeah. I'm the cool kid who skips school and I bully people. Like what else? You know, he, he's probably not going to want people to see that soft side of him. Yeah. And if Christopher Paul Curtis had pulled in any of the other characters, it wouldn't have been true to the character because Byron's whole thing is that it's like he's out for himself. Right. Well, that's what we think. He's not yeah. at the end. We were actually <laughs> right. on Instagram about this. We were like, we, wow, we've had a ride with Byron and I'm right. sure we'll cover more of that as we go. <laughs> All right. So it's, I think it's Byron's story. I feel like we agree on that. Yep. I do want to talk about Rufus a little bit. Kenny's friend, Rufus. I like. Yeah. yeah. Rufus, I loved. Um, I feel like he taught us so much about Kenny and really about this whole family. So Rufus moves to town and I just feel like the whole evolution of his friendship with Kenny is so indicative of like elementary school politics. And it just made me laugh and sad. It just made me have a lot of feelings. Right. So Rufus comes to town and Kenny identifies very early on that this is a kid that's going to be the new target of Byron and Butthead and like all the other bullies. Right. But Kenny likes him. Mm -hmm. But also Rufus annoys him, which I think is like so true of like a lot of (laughs) elementary school friendships. Like they talk about how they had a secret friendship at first. Like at first Rufus would just like kind of keep following him around and would show up and wanted to have lunch together and wanted to do things. And Kenny was like, oh, like I didn't want anybody to know. Like at first it was kind of just between us, which I think it's such like a new kid dynamic. And having been the new kid myself, it made me think like, did I just latch on to kids who like didn't want to be my friend? Right. <laughs> right. Trying to feel everybody out and see where you fit in. Yeah. And it becomes clear to readers, although I don't think it becomes clear to Kenny as quickly, that Rufus is really in a tough spot financially. Rufus's family does not have a lot of money. The kids at school are making fun of Rufus and his little brother, Cody, for sharing clothes. They only have one pair of jeans between them. And so they kind of swap off. And some days Rufus wears them and they're really short. And then some days Cody wears them and they're really long, which is just like so sweet and sad to think about. And the kids, because kids can be so mean, like have counted how many t-shirts each of them have and that's become like fodder for teasing them. But I I fell in love with Kenny's mom through this whole interaction. The mediator. She's the best. Yes. I love her. So she must have realized because Kenny is going home and being like, uh, Rufus keeps like eating some of my lunch. <laughs> and she makes extra. Yeah. She makes extra. How much do we love her? Yes. That's so sweet. And they probably didn't have much to give based on what we're reading about their situation too. So the fact that she was able to do that to help feed someone else was, was really sweet. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's something that I was thinking about too, is the book kind of shows these like, different gradients of need right like Kenny and and Bai's family like they don't have a lot but they're fine like Kenny doesn't seem to want for much right 
his family, his parents always have modeled him that there's more to go around. Like not only does he just, she just send like an extra like Clementine or whatever to school with, right. with Kenny for Rufus. She sends basically like a whole other lunch with him. Like there's just always more and more to give. Right. And I think like when I was growing up, at least I feel like the books that I read, it was very much like some people are rich and some people are poor and that's it. Right. And it takes growing up and often becoming an adult yourself and like learning how to manage your own finances wherever they might stand to realize that like, no, there's like a whole spectrum of need and a whole spectrum of privilege and a whole spectrum of advantage that you can have. And like, you can choose to be generous or not generous at pretty much any of those levels. Right. Absolutely. So I just felt like the nuance with that, like it made me think a lot. And I don't think it's something that I would have realized as a kid. I think I probably, again, because I was shown these examples of like some people are rich and some people are poor and that's it. I probably would have been like, oh, Kenny's family is rich. <laughs> but they're not. Like as an adult, I'm like, no, they are cutting corners in as many places as they can. Right. Yep. Trying to make it happen. So yeah, Rufus was, uh, was a really sweet, case and like I feel like we we saw through Rufus that Kenny is willing to like put aside his his temptations to like kind of be a Byron and like be the cool kid yeah, yeah. exactly like try to be like super aggro and he just wants to be friends with Rufus and they they play together and it those kinds of moments just brought me back to being a kid like the simplicity of just having a friend that comes over and just plays with you it's so nice and being upset once his presence is gone, like he wasn't just like, ah, whatever. You know, he really like felt that like, oh, mom, like he was sad. You could see it in his body language that he just was missing his friend. Like he finally had someone, you know, he talked about the toys that he had. And I can't remember what they were. If they were dinosaurs, was that they were dinosaurs. dinosaurs? And when he was rehashing the other kid that would come over and play and steal his toys. And then it was like Rufus, on the other hand, is just someone who enjoyed just having his time and just having someone to play with and having a genuine friend. So that was sweet to see. Yeah. And he had kind of talked a big game about like not really caring if Rufus came over because he was annoying or whatever. And he I think there's obviously this sense that like being friends with Rufus brought more attention onto Kenny from the bullies because it just sort of like made the target on both of their backs a little bit bigger. Right. And so it was a little bit inconvenient to be friends with Rufus in that way. So he acted like it was like a pain that he would come over. But then you're right. Once he was gone, he missed it. And then, of course, who's fixing it? His mom. Mom. <laughs> She's like, okay, I'll be back. Like, let me go over here. And then all of a sudden, knock, knock, knock. Here's Rufus at the door at 5 o'clock at their playtime. Have you ever had to get involved in any of your kids' friendships? Like, is this a thing that people do? Very rare. Because my kids are just at the age where they're playing sports, so they're really starting to get, like, best friends and, and really close relationships. So they fight over stuff like Roblox and things like that. And I'm like, well, why did you do that? It doesn't make sense. Like, just go apologize, and then they get over it. And it lasts, like, two seconds. It's nothing like what we saw in the book. It's over in seconds. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think if, like, my mom ever had to make a call about a friend drama. I don't think so. I I feel like that was not really allowed or really I don't know it wasn't part of the parent etiquette I also was thinking about the fact as I was reading this knowing that you have kids I feel like this book is such an interesting and like kind of beautiful portrayal of siblings mm -hmm. and how kids interact with each other how do you feel like the sibling relationships in this book like do you feel like it holds true with the way you see your kids interacting I just I was like thinking about that a lot and knowing that you are around kids in your own home interacting with each other I just was curious like what your impression of that was 
they definitely have that protective nature over one another. So I do see that at times that they can be very protective. For the most part, they're very sweet and they're both very loving and they're very open to playing with any and everybody. So they're they're just very happy souls and they they just they don't really see people as being less than or they like that's not really they're not aware of that. Like everybody is kind of we're all the same. We play together no matter what color you are, whatever, like we're going to be friends. We're going to have a great time. So it's, it's actually been pretty cool to see them grow up like that so far. Hope it doesn't change. <laughs> I hope that for you too. Uh, I really do. They're also so cute. I love following you on Instagram. Thank, and you. Thank you. So yeah, I think the siblings were really fun. Those, those relationships. I think the fact that there were two brothers and a sister, it was like, you got to see the brother relationship. And then you also got to see Kenny and Joey's relationship, which is very different. I grew up with only sisters, so I don't really know the brother bond right or a brother sister yeah I, like all of these dynamics were different for me because joey was the only girl and i'm the only child so i know none of that <laughs> well i was an only child like a chunk of the time at my mom's house and then i'd go to my dad's house and have all these sisters so i understand both yeah having your own well yep that's it <laughs> Yeah. So some of these moments, like all of them being crammed into the back of a car, I was like, this seems very stressful to me. My only child, like alarm bells are going off of like, I need space. I need personal time. But then also like all the fun that they had as siblings, like all of the teasing. I'm much older than my siblings. Like it was never really allowed for me to tease my sisters because that just would have been like, like pick on somebody your own size kind of thing. Right. So the fact that these three are so close in age and they're all kind of like fair game to just make fun of each other within reason, of course, like I right. thought that was fun. Yep. The moment when Byron gets his tongue stuck to the mirror because he's kissing him, his lip, it wasn't even his tongue, it was his lips because he's he's kissing himself right. on, the, on the car mirror. And got stuck. And I thought that was the funniest thing. And we kind of, that happened in the beginning, but then they went back a couple of days with the whole him messing with Kenny and the snow thing. And I was like, oh, that's karma. That's why you got stuck to that mirror is because you're messing with your brother in the snow, telling him all this stuff so you can mess around with him and then look at you. You got stuck to the mirror. <laughs> you got to admire the kid's confidence. Right. Yeah. And he does it a couple of times too. In the end of the story too, when he's in the bathroom with Kenny, he does the same kind of thing where he's looking at himself in the mirror and blows himself a kiss. And I'm like, oh, this kid. <laughs> full of himself yeah he's like he always says something along the lines of like well i must be adopted because there's no way that our parents could have produced somebody so good looking <laughs> he's nuts yes very confident one other byron incident that i wanted to talk about before we move into the road trip portion of the book is the matches there's a scene in the book where he gets in trouble for lighting matches, which I've always been very afraid of fire. So I still like can't light a match. I have to have one of those, um, I don't know what it's called. Yeah, yeah, like, a, like a big lighter, the long one. Yes. I, I want to be far from the fire because yep. I, I was, I like took my parents' rules about matches and fire so seriously that I never even learned to light a match. Wow. Which is embarrassing because like I tried recently and my husband like tried to walk me through it and I, I physically could not do it. Could do it. <laughs> Anyway, Byron does not have that problem. He loves to light matches and his parents are like constantly telling him to stop, to stop, to stop, which is a pattern. And this is why Byron is ultimately going to get sent away to Birmingham. But he he does it again. And Kenny actually like catches him in the bathroom with the matches. Yep. And when it becomes clear to their parents that Byron did not listen, there is a scene where their mom appears to be on the verge of like of lighting his finger on a match. Yeah. Until Joey intervenes. <laughs> Joey saves the day. 
But that was interesting because, you know, Byron's this cool kid. He's he's above everything to me and even like playing. So to see him like with these parachutes and these shoulders, like setting them on fire and it's like, you're playing like a little kid in the bathroom by yourself where you think nobody can see you. And so that was another moment where it's like, oh, okay, you're not above being too cool to play with toys and fire and, and have this whole scenario built out in your head. So yeah, that was an interesting scene. And then to see mom, Mrs. Watson gets so mad at him. It's like, I told you that if you did this again, and I wanted it to play out because I'm like, is she really going to do this? Like, she's really going to set his finger on fire. I honestly didn't know. Yeah, me too. I really thought she was going to do it. She meant business. Like right. she, she very much is of the school of thought of like, my, I remember my aunt used to say this too. Like, if you can't listen, you'll have to feel like when my cousins would like, like eventually she would get tired of telling my cousins not to touch the stove. Like, right. Stop touching the stove. She was tired. And if you can't listen, then you have to feel, which isn't the same as like actively lighting your children's finger on fire with a match, obviously. But it's the same philosophy of like, I've told you, and if you can't listen to me, then you're just going to have to understand it yourself. That's it. But I did not know what was going to happen. I was like on the edge of my seat. And I was thinking like, I feel like there's a lot of kids today reading this book who would be completely shocked. Because I think even reading this myself in like, the late 90s, early aughts, this probably surprised me. I I think that there's a different school of discipline now, at least with a lot of families. I mean, I'm not going to be naive enough to say that there aren't families that still handle things with this level of strictness and this level of like physical discipline and harm, what I would argue is abuse. But I also think that there's probably fewer families. This is not nearly as like mainstream as it maybe was at some point in the 60s when this book was set. And so I feel like over time, more and more kids probably become more and more like shocked by scenes like this. Right. And I'm like, back in the day, you know, kids used to get switches and, and spankings on their behind. And, you know, it's totally different than going to timeout or being grounded for a few days like they are now. But I also was surprised at Byron and how he wasn't resistant at all to mm. the punishment. Like he wasn't trying to resist her. Like she was dragging him by the ear down the stairs and all that stuff. And he was just like terrified but he wasn't like trying to fight her off or anything like that he was just taking it mom's the boss yeah not one to be played with at all (laughs) do not mess with mom yeah and he was like as soon as he was in trouble with his mom like all of his tough guy stuff kind of went out the window that's it which i thought was interesting like he respects his parents that's it like you're big and bad but until mom comes in there and puts you in your place it's like okay i'm done which kind of goes back to the masculinity conversation too, because it's like, there are limits. Like uh, your toughness is all performance. It's all outside of this house. That's as it. soon as you're home with your family, a lot of that stuff, your walls completely come down and you are just as afraid of your mom and just right. as respectful of your mom as like your little sister is. So all of this stuff is, is BS. Right. And I was honestly surprised that Byron didn't get in trouble more. Cause I know like nowadays my aunt will joke with me till this day. Like, as an adult, she'd be like, you remember that one time you tried to skip school and the school called me and I called you, like she called me on the phone to see where I was. And I was like, what's up? Like I was just on the couch at home cause I had taken a sick day, but my mom knew, but she forgot to call the school. So they called my aunt to see where I was. And she'll remind me of that all the time. But I was thinking like, Byron skips school all the time. He's never around. So like, how is he not getting in trouble for this? Like, it didn't seem like he ever got in trouble for skipping and he just kept doing it. Yeah, I feel like maybe the part that we don't see is that his pa- their, their parents have like a lot of other stuff to worry about. That, and I think maybe, maybe that's like what we can see as adults. Mm-hmm. That like what we were saying before, they, they're not 
they're not Rufus level poor, but they're struggling. They're working right. really hard. They're trying to keep this family afloat. They're trying to manage everything that's happening in the world in 1963 as a, as a black family. So like, they don't have time to like monitor this kid's every move, but right. I wouldn't have realized that as a kid too. And I probably, I was like, it did feel like he should have been in trouble more. Or maybe they were like, this, this school's taking care of it. They just like, won't let him advance to the next grade. So like, what right. else are we going to do? Right. It's this like a lost cause at this point, but we do get to see Byron do some other thing like the store. That was one thing I wanted to talk to you about that. I know if you were ready for that, but that scene, well, that was kind of, I was going to say a glimpse into the parent's struggle and having to, you know, we'll pay it later this week and just put it on our tab and then we'll pay it off later. So that was kind of a glimpse. And then of course, in the beginning when they had no heat, that was another glimpse of their struggle and what they were going through. So yeah, definitely had some things going on that they may not have focused on Byron completely because of that. But the convenience store, like that, that whole scene, the cookies and Byron, I was like, he's just sitting here charging stuff. to, And all I could think about is when your parents get this bill and there's all these cookies and things that you're just charging to it now that you know that you can do it. I was like, they're going to lose their, like, I thought that was going to be the drawing the line in the sand. Like, I thought that was going to be it with the charges. Yeah, that was bad. So the family gets like a charge account at the convenience store. And now this is great for them because they can send the kids to pick up food for them. So it's like it makes their life easier because they don't have to run all the errands. And there's this awareness with Byron that the family has had food through welfare in the past. And he informs Kenny of this. And what like Kenny didn't know, like Kenny's a kid. Kenny was like, oh, there's food coming from a different part that's not as delicious okay right. whatever right he's like oh i mean the milk was fine it might have a lump here or two you know the powdered milk stuff but it was fine like no big deal right so but byron has this understanding that there has been talk of welfare in their family previously mm-hmm. and so he decides that this is not a charge account this means that they're back on welfare and he's very upset about it but then you're, once he discovers that no it's really just a charge card or not a card but an account and of course like Kenny is humiliated because Byron makes Kenny go talk to the clerk at the store. And Kenny's like, I know we're on welfare. And the guy's like, no, no yeah. your, just sign your name. It's you're charging it. And yes. And then Byron totally abuses it. And then he accidentally kills a bird. Right. Oh yeah. And then felt so bad and had to bury it and stuff. Yeah. Well, and that's when we see his like real character because he was responsible for this bird dying. And that was the first time I think we saw him cry. Yes. Yeah, and he had to bury it. There's a funeral. Right. But I was like, what did you think you were going to happen? You're sitting there throwing, was it rocks at the bird? Like, or the cookies? He was throwing the cookies cookies at the bird. I'm like, what did you think was going to happen if you hit it? Like, Right. (laughs) Yeah, he wasn't thinking. No, he didn't do a lot of thinking. And that's why the parents decide that he has to go to Birmingham. So the whole impetus for going to Birmingham is that they are like fed up. They can't deal with it anymore. They think that Byron needs a new environment. Mm -hmm. And- their mom is from Birmingham. Now they live in Michigan. And she's like, I'm going to, we're going to drive you to my grandma, Grandma Sands. You're going to stay there through the summer, possibly through the school year. She's going to straighten you out. There's also this sort of like gentle hint at the fact that like these kids are very sheltered in Flint. I think the implication is that there's not very many white people in their current community. So they live in a place where everybody looks like them. And that sort of has been part of the reason that maybe Byron has started to like be a terror in his school not experiencing racism and things that occur in the south or see to have his eyes opened right so the idea is that like by bringing him to birmingham in a place where he's seeing white people he's seeing racism he's seeing like 
the just like challenges and miseries and abuses of being a black person in the South in 1963, maybe he'll change his tune a little bit. And also his parents are just like tired of dealing with him, I'm sure. So yeah, they get in the car. There's this like big deal that they got a record player in the car, which I thought was so funny because we take that for granted now. Like we take for granted having music in the car. Right. Now we all just have like our aux cords, or our Bluetooth, and we can listen to literally anything, anything. that we want. But for this family having a record player and for right. Kenny being able to play Yakety Yak oh, over, that's over he and over. That song. Yes. <laughs> Couldn't get it out of my head. Right. It was such a treat. And that made them feel so special and fancy. And the mom was so mad because it was money that she didn't want to spend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She got real upset with that one. But dad was in heaven listening to his music and he was golden. I just love them together. The parents together were so cute and like normal. Right. They have a very loving relationship. Tease each other, lots of inside jokes, like the perfect blend of being in love and like also having a reasonable amount of tension that just happens when you have been together for a long time and have three children and are exhausted. Right. Like you annoy me sometimes, but I love you. <laughs> exactly. Right. So they get to Birmingham. Like I said, the, the road trip part is actually very short. We don't get that much of them in the car. They get there and they, this is actually the first time that Kenny and Joey are meeting their grandmother, mm-hmm. which is, again, like sort of a perspective check for us that like so many people, we take for granted the fact that even if you can't travel, as m- many of us have not been able to, at least this past year, like right. you FaceTimed family members, like they've never even seen their grandmother because she lives so far away. And right. it's a reminder of like how different times are. Mm-hmm. All they'd heard was descriptions of her and that was it. That's all they had. Yeah, they thought she was going to be scary, and she really wasn't, Mm -hmm. although she does warn them about what Kenny thinks is a wool poo (laughs) at this local swimming hole, and he hears that because she has such a thick southern accent, and what she's actually saying is whirlpool, but he thinks that wool poo is like some scary twin brother of Winnie the Pooh, the cartoon character, or like the book character, and he's like, oh, I'm not scared of that, so he, he goes swimming anyway. Byron and Joey are like, yeah, we're not... We're not going to disobey grandma, but Kenny goes anyway. And it's actually this very scary scene and is the beginning of like a very interesting sort of like mental health journey for Kenny because he almost drowns mm-hmm. and he sees what he thinks is like an actual character, the whirlpool, because he still hasn't figured out that this is a whirlpool. Right. And so he sort of like has this experience where he sees a whirlpool that he thinks <laughs> is dragging him down under the water and right. in the end it's it's byron that saves Thanks him that's it of course and he cries right yeah that's right that was the other time we saw him cry because he thinks that he lost he almost lost his brother. brother and then tells him not to tell anybody about it either because he doesn't want to disturb the family but yeah byron saves the day byron comes when you need him everybody wants a big brother like byron he has a he definitely has a soft spot you definitely see it with kenny that where he's bailed him out numerous times yeah, and Kenny never found out like what really happened because he's like, oh, it was a whirlpool that almost killed me. So that <laughs> this is like the story that he's telling himself as he walks away, which transitions us into like really the biggest, scariest climax of the book, which is mm-hmm. unfortunately based on a real life event. Right. So the author has been planting seeds throughout the book about Joey loving church, super religious. Mm-hmm. We get a scene early on where one of their neighbors gives her a white angel and is like, this looks just like you and you love going to church. And Joey's like, yeah, but she's white. So she puts it in her sock drawer or something. Yeah. But we know that Joey likes church. And so at the end of the book or toward the end, she's going to go to Sunday school on her own in Birmingham while the family's all still hanging out before they leave Byron and go back to Flint. Mm -hmm. She gets all dressed up and Kenny's hanging out outside. And then there's this very scary moment when 
his family alerts him to the fact that there's been word that there's been a bombing at the church Mm -hmm. where Joey is. And this is based on a real life event that happened in September of 1963. The author did shift the timeline a little bit so that it could accommodate like a summer trip for the Watsons. Right. But pretty much everything else is very similar. There were four girls, four little girls killed in this bombing in real life. There were four little girls killed in this bombing in the book. Many more people injured. Also just like a horrendous act of racism against a black church, all of which we see reflected in the book. Mm -hmm. And they don't know if Joey's okay. Right. That she went off to Sunday school and like, we don't know. And then you kind of go on this journey of Kenny trying to figure out, is it her? Is it not? Yeah, he walks into the church by himself. And I think I actually didn't totally follow the timeline of this until after. Like, I don't, there was something about it that felt a little confusing to me. And maybe it's because Kenny was kind of disconnected from it. Like, it felt like the whole thing was an out-of-body experience for him. So maybe that's why it felt like an out-of-body experience for me as a reader. Like, I couldn't tell what was real and what was fake. Same. The pulling Joey away from the church. Like, I that part was confusing to me because I'm like, was it, did that happen or did it not? You know, what is he seeing? Yeah, I'm still not totally sure how Joey was home but good news everybody joey is fine she's alive yeah i was so thrilled but then i thought that i then i was like is is this real i couldn't tell i thought maybe like kenny had died and was a ghost. like i thought there were ghosts involved for a minute it talks about him getting the shoe like he saw one of the yeah took one of the shoes of the little girl so he was thinking that it was joey but it doesn't really tell us how he got there it was like you're in the house and then all of a sudden all of this stuff is happening Yeah, and there's an implication that he kind of saved her by, like, calling her home, but we don't see when that happens. Right. But that is cool because he gets a chance to be a hero to Joey the way Byron has been a hero to him a few times. Mm -hmm. So that is meaningful even though we don't really see it happen. So Joey is fine, but Kenny is very much not fine. Right. And this is the part that I'm sure I did not have any appreciation for when I was a kid reading this book because this is actually, like, a really – obvious to me kind of exploration of like PTSD and depression and anxiety because the whole family goes back to Flint like they they're not leaving Byron in in Birmingham which I can only imagine is because they're like we almost lost one of our kids everybody's coming home right and Kenny does not recover from what he saw in the church and nobody knows that he was there so he starts acting super weird and nobody gets it yeah it's hiding behind the couch and nobody can understand why he's so traumatized like by the events that occurred it was very affecting for me like I and I I think there was something about the way that the author described this space behind behind the couch they called it like the Watson's world famous pet hospital because yep (laughs) <laughs> the kids have this memory that whenever they had cats and dogs, and this is like a really sad thing if you have pets, but like if you have a pet who like knows that they're not well, they go off alone usually to like either be sick or to die and see if they're going to feel better. Right. And because the Watsons couldn't afford veterinary care, they never got to take their pets to see if they could feel better. So these pets, when they were sick, would ultimately just like go behind the couch and, and sometimes feel better and sometimes not. Right. So they joked that it was the world's famous pet hospital (laughs) and so there was something about the way that that was constructed and then to see that that's where Kenny chose to go right it just broke my heart I thought that that was like a really like kind of beautiful little detail that that did a lot for me to interpret what Kenny was dealing with right and then it also at that point made me fall in love with Bai as well because he came and slept on the couch while Kenny was behind the couch. He was like, I'm just going to be here. My presence, just so his presence was there. So Kenny would know that he's not alone. And I'm just like, oh, bye. I hated you the whole story. And now it's like, I have to like you. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I kind of love when a character comes out of nowhere and does that, but I also kind of makes me mad because I'm like, I I really wanted to trust my instincts with you, and you just messed the whole thing up. Right. Yep. I had a definite hate. Well, no, it was a hate relationship with him the entire time until like that last snippet where he just really showed that he was like human. He had emotions and he cared for his his siblings. Yeah, I just like the visual of him. So like you said, he slept on the couch, but then there was also this visual of like every day Kenny would be laying behind the couch and Byron's head would just like pop up over the top and be like, hey man, what's going on? Yeah, what you doing down there? (laughs) But I do think that like, I don't know that I've read a book, especially a kid's book that like so, that, that feels so obvious to me to be a depiction of PTSD and of like the effects of trauma. And I think we've talked a lot on the show about how long it's taken for kid lit to start to explore those things. Like I think as a, like a reading community, we tend to think that those things haven't been explored until recently. Like right. it's a novelty, right? Like right. how cool that all these YA authors are now talking about trauma and talking about mental health and all of these things. But Christopher Paul Curtis did it very explicitly in the early nineties with right. this book. He did. He did. That was kind of cool to see just to incorporate that. Yeah. I thought it was pretty cool. I was surprised by it again, especially since I'd like read the book and didn't remember this at all. Yeah. I am curious. There was an adaptation, which I kind of want to see. It was a Hallmark adaptation. I saw that. It? Yes. I saw that after reading it. I saw that. I'm like, I'm going to have to go and find the movie so I can watch it now because I'm intrigued. I'm very intrigued. And I watched the trailer and it looks like it was pretty good. Sky Jackson is in it, who I only know because she was on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> And is so cute as Joey. So yeah, I want to watch it. I read that it's it's fairly true to the book in spirit. I saw a YouTube video that was like interviewing Christopher Paul Curtis about the adaptation. And he seems like he was pretty happy with it. I think they took out a lot of the scenes of them like hanging out in Flint. Yeah. And then added a few more scenes of them like actively getting involved in the civil rights movement. Like I think maybe they changed it so that the family stayed in Birmingham a little bit longer. And like the boys were marching and like making signs. Oh, uh, that's cool which I thought was cool. Um, but yeah, I really want to watch it. So listeners, I'll see if I can dig up any information about where you can see it. You, I'm yeah. sure there's like a shady way to watch it on YouTube. I'm probably going to try. I probably can get it on Amazon Prime. You probably can rent it for like 2 $3 or whatever. I'm going to do that after we finish up here. Go oh, ahead. that's true. Okay, you'll have to let me know if you find it. I will. I was going to say also, so I was reading this and halfway through me reading it, the um, audiobook became available. So I don't know if you knew this, but LeVar Burton actually narrates... Yeah, that, listen, I listened to the whole thing, right? And then at the end, it was like, this Audible is narrated by LeVar Burton. I was like, what? I've been listening to this the whole time and just didn't realize that was him. So that was so cool to hear him do the audio narration of the Watsons Go to Birmingham. So Renee can attest that my jaw dropped at the mention of LeVar Burton. (laughs) Yes, it did. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Well, I really enjoyed reading this book. I know you didn't read it as a kid, so you can't necessarily like compare it to reading it back then. But did this book meet your expectations or like what was your overall experience with it? It did. Sometimes when you read older books, you just don't, I don't know, it's, you just don't know. Like I wasn't expecting him to go as deep into racism and actually show those parts of it. So I wasn't sure about that. Like I wasn't expecting that. So I really enjoyed that a book that was written in the 90s was still able to... Because right like right now, I feel like there's a lot of YA books that cover racism because it's still a big thing. So it's kind of, I don't want to say a trend, but a lot of authors are writing about racism and, and things that are happening today. 
And so it was kind of cool to see a book from the 90s that, I mean, it was still an issue, but I don't think it was as big a focus in then as it is right now. So that was kind of cool to see. Yeah, and it was cool that he pegged it to 1963. I mean, I keep referring to the book as The Watsons Go to Birmingham, but it's it's really The Watsons Go to Birmingham dash 1963. Right. And I think it's worth noting that it was like an important enough part of this to include the the date of the year as part of the title. I actually sort of coincidentally, I'm I'm taking a class right now um, on race and ethnicity. And I was reading like one of my reading assignments this week. I was working on this morning before we jumped on. And it was literally all about the year 1963. Oh, wow. And how significant that was. So I was like, oh, this is kind of like a, a perfect little crossing of my world, my yeah. my grad school world and my SSR world of like, just a reminder that this this year meant so much to the civil rights movement. And it was such a hard year and such an important year. Right. So yeah, I mean, I, I haven't said the Watsons go to Birmingham 1963, but that's really what it's called. So I think I just wanted to remind listeners of that as well. Yeah, very good. Very good read overall. Definitely met my expectations. So I was excited to read it finally. But yeah, I enjoyed every bit of it. Good. Well, I'm glad that you picked it. What else have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh, um, let's see. Reading. Well, I just finished um, Alicia Keys's memoir, More Myself, which was really good. I did that via audiobook so I can hear her voice and she sings a little bit of, in it. Um, oh, cool. So I read that. And what did I do? His Only Wife was one that I read, which is really good. I'm trying to think of what I'm getting ready to start. Yeah, I think I'm going to do some... some um, contemporary romance just to kind of break things up and and move on to something a little lighter to kick off February and then Yellow Life I think is our book of the month for February so historical fiction um so I'm excited about that too yeah and everybody go on over if you're not if you're not already following book girl magic go check out what Renee's doing your February pick Yellow Wife everybody can get involved you have at this point when this episode drops three more weeks to get in on reading that and yeah, I love following you, Renee. I'm so glad we've been friends in this book world yeah. for so long. You were like a guest pretty early on on the show. Yeah, so thanks again for having me. Hopefully we can see each other in person at some point if BookCon and the world ever goes back to normal. Someday. At, in the meantime, I just have to ask you to come back on my podcast like That's many it. times. Yeah, for sure. You know, I love being here. So, <laughs> Well, listeners, I will include links to the Watsons Go to Birmingham, all of the recommendations that Renee just offered, book girl magic all of the cool things that she's doing there and of course to your first appearance on the show roll of thunder hear my cry so many good things for you to check out over in those show notes this week listeners renee thank you so much for your time it was so fun chatting with you and seeing your face again yes thanks so much for having me have a good one bye bye ssr is part of the frolic podcast network find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.